Our text for this morning is Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Read with me. After he had finished saying all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Bethlehem. It is a joy to be here with you. Like Pastor Brad said, Abigail and I will be going to Cameroon soon, we hope, by God's grace. Uh, We hope for October. Um, And so what a joy, after seven years of being with all of you, to be able to preach, to give you something spiritually when we have received so much from you spiritually. I was very thankful. Let's pray and give this sermon into the hands of our sovereign God. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and we're so thankful that we, non-Jews, could be reading your word. And even more than that, that we have received the word that we've received you, Jesus, in our hearts, that you have saved us by your blood, that you've adopted us. What a grace, what a grace. Would you please, O Lord, now by your Holy Spirit, make your word impact our hearts, not just our minds, but our hearts, so that we would be treasuring you more every day. We pray this in your name, amen. In Luke 7, 1, we read, and you can look at your Bibles, that after Jesus had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. By this verse, Luke is informing us that we're transitioning from formal teachings to stories, narratives. He enters. Jesus was speaking, and now he enters. He does an action. Well, it was a joy to contemplate Christ's rich, formal teachings in the Sermon on the Plains. I'm sure that some of you are ready to now enter stories. We love stories. We love stories because in them we get to see Jesus crying, rejoicing, going, entering, being sad, or being amazed. There's a sublime difference, a sublime difference 
between in the beginning God created and, bear with me, God's triune creational act is the cosmologically foundational event of the drama of doctrine. <laughs> it means the same thing. <laughs> but stories, they say that so much better sometimes. In the beginning, God created. That's all you need sometimes. Don't misunderstand me. We can and we ought to be able to be taught formally, but most of us naturally enjoy stories. In fact, we see our own lives and everything around us as stories. It is no wonder since the most essential fact about reality is that it is the story whose author is God. Indeed, most stories are composed of five elements which makes it a good story. And the story of this world matches that as well because it is the, the story, it is reality itself. So let's go through those five steps with the Bible in mind. So any story begins with once upon a time. Initial situation, set up, once upon a time. And of course in the Bible, that's creation. In the beginning, God created. Then second step would not be a story if that did not happen, problem. Something happens, something goes wrong. And of course in the Bible, that's the fall. And third step, the transformative action. That which is done to resolve the problem. And of course in the Bible, that's God's promise of the serpent crusher and then the actual coming of Christ and his death and resurrection and even ascension. Then four, with the falling action. That is, the transformative action has been done to resolve the problem and now we see the consequences of that transformative action. And that would be the era in which we are. The already but not yet. And then five, Final situation. And they lived happily ever after. We all know that's how stories work, right? And in the Bible, of course, that is Christ's precious second coming and the bursting forth of the new creation. All good stories ever told emulate that one foundational story we're living in, God's story. And today, we get to read and meditate on a littler story within the story. While stories are dynamic and lively, Luke 7, 110, that is a story, does have a formal teaching. And I want you to be aware of that. So before going verse by verse through our passage together, which we'll do, I want to frame our time by stating exactly what Luke wants us to know from this story that he tells us. He wants us to learn about faith. Not any type of faith, not the faith of demons, but saving faith. Here's my way of putting the passage's main point. Saving faith does not put forward its righteousness. Rather, while affirming its worthlessness, it puts its trust in Christ's power. I repeat, Saving faith does not put forward its righteousness. Rather, while affirming its worthlessness, it puts its trust in Christ's power. As we'll see, Luke contrasts saving faith, that saving faith, and blind faith. That contrast is very helpful to understand saving faith further. It's very important to Luke. And I'll summarize it as well. Saving faith, so that's a contrast. Saving faith 
despairs of sight itself, reaches clumsily outward for the sun of righteousness, and though blind, sees. While blind faith claims perfect sight, reaches proudly inward in the self for one's inner light, sees darkness, that's what's there, and thus is blind. We'll see this contrast play all around Luke 7, 1 to 10. For those of you who have your Bibles open, keep them opened. And for those of you who don't, I would invite you to open your Bibles and follow with me. Here's a structure you should see in this story, a structure that's helpful, the structure that follows the five points of any story. First, verses one and two, we see our transition that we've already talked about from teachings to stories. And then we have the initial situation and the problem. I've called verses one and two, Jesus' return to Capernaum and the centurion's sick servant. Second, verses three to eight, that's our transformative action. I've called this unit the centurion's request for Jesus' healing. He makes two requests. That's a peculiarity of this passage. One through the Jewish elders and one through his friends. And third, verses nine and 10, that is the falling action and the final situation. We see Jesus' praise of the centurion's faith and the actual healing of the servant. Let's go through our passage. First, Jesus' return to Capernaum and the centurion's sick servant in verses one and two. As we've already seen in verse one, Luke makes this transition from teachings back to narratives. The first action that Jesus does is that he enters Capernaum. That's our initial situation. He's back in Capernaum. I say back because we should know by now in Luke that he's already been there. Indeed, that's where he famously taught with, I quote, a most astonishing authority. And he also cast out a demon out of a man there. We see that in Luke 4, 31 to 35. Moreover, in Luke 4.23 and Luke 10.13-15, we also learn that Christ has done many other things, many other miracles there, mighty works, which are probably not related even by the Gospels themselves. So Christ comes back to Capernaum. It's not his first time there. It's important. And Luke does not tell us why he comes back either. As a matter of fact, from there on, Christ will be surprisingly passive in our story. Understand me correctly. What I mean is that the story will rather focus on another person. Christ is there. He's a center always. But he's passive in our narrative. We encounter him in verse 2, the centurion. With him, we also encounter a sick servant. And the sickness of the servant is, of course, the problem of our story that needs fixing. Read verse 2 with me. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. It is perhaps good to remember what a centurion is in the first place. If you wander, you're not alone. <laughs> centurions, centurions were commanders in the Roman army of 100 men. They were not at all the top of the hierarchy, but they did earn a significant salary. They were not nobodies. They tended, on the whole, according to historical sources, to be rougher, less educated people, but they were reliable and straightforward. 
Imagine a man like U.S. Army Sergeant Ortmund, complete with a bus cut and a hat. <laughs> That's the type of guy. Needless to say, the centurion's presence at Capernaum is due to Rome's rule and colonization of Galilee. That's why he's there in the first place. And so we learned that that guy, that centurion, has a sick servant. And this servant is sick to the point of death. Luke adds this likely to make sure that we understand that it was clear to everybody around that there was no saving him. He was done for, the point of death. He's in a critical condition. The doctors have given up. The only hope left is a miraculous intervention. Finally, we read that the centurion highly valued him. While Roman slavery was on the whole better than many systems of slavery before and after, this is still a shocking fact to read, that he highly valued his slave. Some Roman slave owners could and did like their slaves, actually, with numerous instances of Romans boasting of and taking good care of a famous chef. As a famous chef, they would actually dispute with each other, uh, with, with resources about that. Or an able accountant, or in sometimes, unfortunately, a mistress. So those were highly valued slaves that we know about. But reading that the centurion regarded that slave as valued, precious, without any reasons for it, is somewhat odd. They were valued for what they did, not as people. So as we'll see in the following verses, the centurion goes to lengths that are incredible for any Roman owners. That is not just a virtuous Roman slave owner, that is beyond what was expected. His love is beyond what was expected in his own culture. With the end of verse 2, our story's foundations are set up. On one side, we have Christ coming back to Capernaum, and we as the readers know who he is and what he's capable of. And on the other side, we have a centurion with a problem, a beloved sick servant. We're now left to almost anxiously desire their encounter. Thus, we transition to the second part of our story, verses 3 to 8. The centurion's request for Jesus' healing. This is the core of our passage. We read in verse 3 that he heard about Jesus' return. As we've seen, Capernaum knew Christ already. It is likely that the centurion has seen himself, the previously demon-possessed man, at Galilee's Aldi while grocery shopping. <laughs> but it is. I was astonished by that fact when I thought of it. He probably just saw him in the streets. At the very least, he heard detailed reports. At the very least, he heard detailed reports about what Jesus had taught and done. In any case, the centurion puts his trust in Christ's power and decides the request of Christ that he heals his sick servant. The centurion's request is a transformative action in the story. The action done to resolve the problem. The centurion sees Christ as the solution to his problem. Now the way in which the centurion will address his request is paramount for Luke. He does not go to Jesus himself like Jairus did. He could have ran and just go to Jesus. He, he does not do that. He rather makes his request through two means. 
First, through some Jewish contacts he had, that's verses three to six. And second, through his friends, verses six to eight. For whatever reason, and we'll see why later, he does not want to go to Jesus in person. At this point of the narrative, we can think that it's either because he's a powerful man who's just too busy, or because he knows about Jewish ritual purity laws and knows that a Jew would not come under a non-Jew's roof. Those are probably the two things that we could think, not knowing what happens afterwards. Well, if we didn't know what happened afterwards. We'll see if that's the case or not. The first means by which he chose to address his request to Jesus is to send some Jewish contacts he had in verses 3 to 6. The centurion first thinks it best to ask Jewish people that they be his mediators of sorts. Makes sense. They would know how to approach Jesus. They're Jews. He's a Jew. At this point, it is worth mentioning what type of Jewish people he sends. Those are not heads of synagogues. Uh, those are essentially socially prominent Jews, Jewish leaders, local town leaders, essentially. The wording of the request the centurion shares with them is important. I read, the centurion sent to Jesus elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. That could and should look odd. Especially when we know the second request the Roman leader will make right after. Why is he asking for Jesus to come if one, and we're jumping ahead here, he believes that one word from him suffices? And two, he doesn't think himself worthy of seeing him anywhere. So that's odd. The way I reconcile that is my solution. The centurion's first request and the second is that I see in the first request a desperate, help, come quick. Imagine this scene with me. The centurion's neighbor, let's call him David, arrives at his home's front porch, exhausted, knocks on the door and says, Titus, the centurion, Jesus is here because he knows about his servant being on the point of death. The centurion looks at David, he looks at his servant, bent out of shape, bleeding, point of dying, and he immediately runs to the Jews. Doesn't think about it, he just runs to the Jews. Like, go get Jesus, please. Make him come quick. Another way to see it is that if your baby is bleeding out, sometimes you just have a knee-jerk reaction. You do, you do something for helping and you don't think about it. It's just a knee-jerk reaction. Afterwards, you'll think about it. Verse 4, the Jews accept and come to Jesus. The way they transmit the centurion's request to Jesus will betray a faith which is different from the centurion's faith. We will discover the Romans' leader's faith in verses 68, and it will be very different from what we'll hear here. And remember, that's a contrast that I said Luke really wants us to see. He doesn't want us to miss that. Now, to give the Jews some credit, they pleaded with Jesus earnestly. That eager, urgent in their tones. Come, please, now. However, the foundation of their request, the reason why Jesus should come at all, what they put forward is the centurion's righteousness. Look at verse 4. 
He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. In other words, the Jews are saying, you don't have a choice, Jesus. He's worthy. The Jewish people owe him. We owe him. You owe him too. He deserves this. What he did justifies that you would do this for him. The basis for their request betrays a disworldly language of honor and obligation. He did that for us. He deserves that you do that for him. There's no economy of grace here. The Jews transmit this insurance request to Jesus with their understanding of faith. A faith which puts forward its righteousness, a faith with, which reaches inward, a faith which considers itself justified by the works it does, by the works of the law. Beloved, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Galatians 3.10 and walk in darkness because the light of saving faith is not in them. John eleven ten. These Jews are blind guides. They rely on an ultimately blind faith. These Jewish elders end up being a deceitful means for the centurion. They did not make his request in the way he would have wanted it to be made, as we'll see. And yet, surprisingly, we read in verse 6 that Jesus went with them. Christ, according to his divine nature, I believe, knew that the centurion's request and faith had not been presented correctly. The story looks like that should be it. If we know how stories work, that should be it. The centurion made his request, transformative action. They told Jesus, he accepted to come. Now as readers, we're expecting Jesus to come, heal, end of story, the end. We've been trained to see, to see those patterns and stories, so that's really what we are expecting right now. However, this story takes an unexpected turn. Look at verse 6. When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him with a message. So we have a second request, a second transformative action. Like I said, I believe that the centurion wasn't pleased with the way he made his first request. It was a knee-jerk reaction. Go get Jesus. And after some time of reflection, we don't know how long, he probably now wants to give a more detailed request so that Jesus doesn't get the wrong idea about him and his request. At that point of the story, you have to imagine the centurion might even be able to see Jesus himself. Because Luke says he was not far away, not far from the house. So imagine Jesus was just at Hope Church, just right there. And the centurion could look like, oh, goodness, what is he going to think of me? I just talked like, just go get him. And I'm not worthy of this guy. So he, he feels bad. He sends friends, like, just, just for you know, this is not how I meant it to be. I just spoke too fast. Go, go tell him that, please, please. I don't want him to get a wrong impression of me. There's no time to get anyone but his closest friends who were in the room with him, probably. So he sends them. That's the second means that he uses to make his request to Jesus. 
And there won't be a deceitful means since this time the centurion makes sure that they memorize or they carefully listen to his message that they can say it faithfully to Jesus. And this really is what Luke wants us to say because this speech of the centurion is where he spends the most time in the narrative. That's the lengthiest part of it. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 together. Here, take note, I'm actually using the NIV for verse 7 because it shows a parallel that you find in Greek that the ESV, uh, you don't see it in the ESV. I'll comment on that. So let's read. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So the NIV here, well, the ESV says presume, but the word behind presume, the verb, is the same root as worthy. So I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. It's the same, same word, the same root. And so the NIV shows that a little bit better there. I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. He's repeating it twice. Ten minutes ago, the Jews were saying to Jesus, trouble yourself. He's a big deal. He's worthy. He deserves it. Go. The centurion's message is exactly the opposite. It almost feels like he just heard them speak. No, 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 no. This is not me. Send a message. We now know also that he's using mediators to make his request to Jesus, not because he's a big deal, or he thinks himself he's a big deal, and not even because of Jewish ritual laws of purity. Because he says, I'm not worthy to have you here in my house or go to you. Non-Jews could go to Jews in the streets. That was fine. But he said, I'm not worthy of both. So what's the reason? The core motivation behind the sending of mediators to Jesus is based on his understanding of Jesus and himself. And he judges himself to not be worthy of being anywhere in his presence. As some of you know, Abigail and I have been blessed with a son five months ago, our little Calvin. And as a result, I've been discovering and enjoying American children's literature. <laughs> I'm from Belgium, so this is new for me, and I've been enjoying it. And the centurion's earnest repetition, I'm not worthy here, I'm not worthy there, I'm not worthy anywhere. <laughs> you know where I'm going with that. It made me think of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> so bear with me. It's as if, and for the kids in the audience there, you know that, it's as if Sam I Am came to the centurion and said, yeah, worthy, meet Jesus. And the centurion in the pavilion would respond, I could not, would not on a boat. I will not, will not with a goat. I will not see him in the rain. I will not see him on a train. Not in the dark, not in a tree, not in a car. You let me be. I am not worthy of being in his presence anywhere. can't emphasize enough how much the centurion does not think he's worthy of Jesus. He does not put forward his righteousness at all. It's 
what will amaze Jesus later. Rather, he affirms multiple times his worthlessness. Unlike blind faith, which says it sure can be that I should gain, saving faith rather sings through the centurion, and can it be that I should gain? Saving faith, the spirit of sight itself, reaches outward to the son of righteousness, and though blind sees. As admirable as his confession already is, the centurion does not stop there, neither should we. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Simply base on what he might have seen, might, what we don't know, what he might have seen, what he probably did hear of Jesus' teachings, he puts that much trust in Christ. Say the word, that'll be enough for you. And then he makes a minor to major comparison. If I, a centurion, can give orders to soldiers and see them be accomplished, Surely you can order disease away, to just be away. This looks like simple logic, but the logic is amazing because it is based and so casually presupposes an amazing faith in Christ's power, in who he is and his power. That's an even greater faith than the paralytic and his friends who showed fantastic faith, but really thought, well, we need to get to Jesus. He, he needs to touch us somehow. He needs to see us. That's even a greater faith than that. It's unseen in the Gospels. Of course, the question arises right away. We can't know if he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. We can't know. But like John Calvin wrote, he at least believed the power of God resided in a very special way in Jesus. That we know. Whether the centurion was saved or not, not putting forward one's own righteousness, rather affirming one's worthlessness and putting one's trust in Christ's power is how saving faith, true faith, has always looked like. So whether he's saved or not, this point of the narrative almost doesn't matter. It's a seed then. That's how faith looks like. He's showing us that. It's a strikingly beautiful sight. And Luke wants us to see the contrast with the Jews and their inward-bent, self-bent, bleak, blind faith as self-righteous people. Now, let's see what Jesus himself says about the faith of the centurion. We finally reached the third part of our story. Jesus' praise of the centurion's faith and the healing of the servant, verses 9 and 10. This is our falling action. The problem is being resolved, about to be resolved because of the transformative action, the amazing request and faith of the centurion. And then the final situation, the servant is healed. Let's read verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he 
marveled at him. Jesus heard. I'm amazed that he heard because at the beginning, the centurion hears. The centurion hears about Jesus, and now Jesus hears about the centurion. I think Luke did that intentionally. And Christ marvels. He's simply amazed. This is one of only two texts in the entire Bible in which Jesus is amazed. And the other type, the, the other part, is Mark 6.6, 6, in which he marvels at unbelief. So he's amazed about unbelief. It's not good. This is the only text in the Bible in which he's amazed positively, which is amazing. Should raise a, maybe not a red flag, that's not the right English expression, uh, but should raise a good red flag. <laughs> like Calvin says so well, it was no small matter to declare in such lofty terms the power of God of which a few rays only were yet visible in Christ. Then Jesus comments on his amazement. We're still in verse 9. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus turns this event into a formal teaching moment. Don't miss the lesson is essentially what he's saying. We didn't even know there was a crowd, so we actually learned it there. He said, don't miss the lesson. That's a lesson. What just happened right now, it's a big lesson. Don't miss it. Not only is this faith amazing, but the fact that it's found outside of Israel is also amazing. This Roman man with his strange lips and his foreign tongue, as Isaiah 28, 11 says, worships, gives praise, puts his trust in the one true God with a faith that amazes Jesus himself. Luke will show, perhaps more than anybody else in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, throughout the rest of his book, it's one book, Luke Acts, one book, how much the centurion and all of us non-Jews are blessed and so loved by God to be able, through that type of saving faith, to become sons and daughters of the one true God. Beloved, don't let America fool you. The main wonder, the main wonder of the new covenant is not the ethnic diversity of people present in it. The fact that you're Americans and Belgium and he's Togolese. But the fact that all of us, equally non-Jewish peoples, lost without hope in the world, will be with the center grafted in Christ through saving faith. That's the main wonder. It was scandalous to the Jews. Scandalous to the Jews back then, scandalous to the Jews now. Orthodox Jews, at least. Orthodox Jews see all of us as goim, that is non-Jews. It's the Hebrew term for it. Funnily enough, it just meant peoples, but it evolved to be negative. And the term is almost always used negatively by Orthodox Jews today. I've lived in Israel for a couple of years, and I've actually heard it live <laughs> from Jewish people. And say, I'm Meshugahim, Agoim. They're insane, these non-Jewish people. That's what you just said. They're insane. They see all of us as degenerate dogs. 
worthy, not worthy at all at any levels of being considered the people of God. (laughs) And yet, beloved, as you know, in the New Covenant, it is those of a faith like the one of the centurion who are the actual sons and daughters of Abraham, the patriarch. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the non-Jews by faith alone. The amazing fact of the new covenant, what Paul calls a central mystery in Ephesians, is that we non-Jews are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. That's the main point. Wonder and mystery of the new covenant. Don't let America muddy that for you. This precious new covenant reality of which we are the beneficiaries was already being accomplished in today's passage. If you do not put forward your righteousness, rather, while affirming gladly your worthlessness, and you put your trust in Christ's power, then you can rejoice, for you have been giving, you've been given a marvelous faith, which amazes Christ himself and is a gift from him. Finally, let's go to verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. When through saving faith, we reach outward for Christ, and Christ embraces us back with tenderness, we can confess with the hymn, whether our sick servant is made well or not, that whatever my lot, does taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In Luke 7, 1 to 10, we have learned together that saving faith does not put forward its righteousness, rather while affirming its worthlessness, it puts its trust in Christ's power. That's the faith the centurion had, and that's the faith which amazed Jesus himself. We've also contemplated a striking contrast between the saving faith of the centurion and the blind faith of the Jews. The saving faith of the centurion He despairs of sight itself. He reaches clumsily outwards for the son of righteousness. And though blind, he sees. And the Jews, and really any pagan, any any non-Christian, the Jews with their blind faith claim perfect sight, reach proudly inward for their inner light, see darkness, and therefore are blind. And they are blind to the son of God. Permit me now to and our timing, God's word, by some apt words from Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland, which captures so well the essence of Luke 7, 1 to 10. In the letter to a friend that he wrote two years before his death, so that's really one of his last words, really, Carroll says that some of the core truths Christ taught us is, and I quote, our own utter worthlessness and its infinite worth. It is by faith in Christ and through no merit of ours that we're reconciled to God. And most assuredly, I can cordially say, I owe all to him who loved me and died on the cross of Calvary. Let's pray.
Jesus, we do come to you. We don't come to you thinking we're worthy of being in your presence. We, but we do come to you because you have, by your Holy Spirit, called us off all the lost nations without hope, and you have adopted us and made us sons and daughters of you. You have died on the cross. You are resurrected. You have paid for our sins. You have reconciled us. And so we can come to you. We don't come to you, Lord, and would you please put to death any tendency of coming to you with our own righteousness. Look at what I did, Jesus. Look at how good I was. But may we come to you confessing gladly our worthlessness and your worthiness and putting our trust in your power. Would you do that? And more also, we pray in your precious, matchless name. Amen.